I posed the question via social media. What makes a good cop? Over 3,000 of you responded to this question, and we had literally hundreds of people wanting to share their opinion on this important subject. Policing has changed so much in the last few years. We've seen the introduction of new entry requirements, fast-track schemes, direct entry to detective programmes, and also apprenticeships. Every one of these is designed to increase the diversity of the workforce, increase the quality of our future police officers, and professionalise the role of a police officer. Then we also have the things you just can't teach. How valuable are these when you become a police officer? To help me, I am joined by Sergeant Richard Horton. Richard is a police sergeant with over 29 years service as an officer. He himself has worked in many roles, such as a detective, targeting, handling informants. And if we could gather those who have seen the best and sometimes worst of policing, I imagine Richard would be right up there with them. Richard, thanks for agreeing to go through social media responses with me today. I think it's really important to have someone such as yourself go through these with me. Sometimes it's important that we test even our own theories and use opportunities such as this to question or challenge what is right for policing. I know you are very vocal at times on social media, but also I admire the way that you use Twitter, for example, to challenge and debate some of the ways in which you've seen policing change over the years. I want to start with your own response to my question. You said that there is no cop template and that sometimes it could be easier to identify the negatives, the things that can make a bad cop almost. What did you mean by some of those? The good cop is not like a cookie cutter template. It's a broad church. You have a very wide range of capabilities within the team. At one end, you have somebody that is perhaps a borderline super recognizer, somebody that is very good, uh, potentially down the intel side, the football spotting side, physically quite a robust cop, public order and dealing with street disorder and drunkenness. At the other end, you have the cop who, if you absolutely positively had to guarantee the safeguarding of a vulnerable DV victim, that's who you'd send if they were available. But if they weren't available, you'd expect the other members of the team to be able to pitch hit and deal with it because it should all be within the competence of an officer. But some are better at other things than others. And what is the basic training that you would expect somebody to come on your team with once they've come out of the classroom? They come from the classroom and from that I would expect a decent basic legal knowledge. I think on response, it's fair to say you are dealing with probably the same 30 offences over and over and over again. I'd expect them to have gone through the TutorCon process and to be comfortable with working by themselves, to be comfortable with dealing with members of the public, So I would expect a basic level of physical presence and ability to look after yourself physically. For better or worse, policing is where society puts the lawful use of coercive force. And for better or worse, you have to use that most shifts for something as simple as actually putting handcuffs on somebody to having to fight with and overcome somebody, deploy parva, deploy a taser, use the baton. You know, there is no shying away from the need to get stuck in every now and again, is there? I can recall a few hairy moments myself, times when there was a need to be able to physically restrain somebody or dealing with a violent offender or some pretty hairy football matches too. And some of those occasions, I remember I was on my own. 
And on Twitter, we had some responses. And some of those responses said that a good cop needed hard fists and a hard jaw, for example. How important is this in becoming a good cop? And do you see this as presenting a challenge in policing at the moment? I'd say the physical side is a challenge for all of us. I come with certain advantages, if you will. I'm big, still relatively strong, trained in jiu-jitsu, which helps tremendously when you have to go hands-on with somebody. Not that many recruits come with that particular set of skills already before they join the job. Sometimes you are going to get the wrong side of a physical confrontation and it's going to hurt. And it's going to hurt whether you're male, female, whether you're five foot one or, or six foot one. And there's no guarantee that you're going to win. And there's no point sugarcoating that. It's part of the job and it's an expected part of the job. You would hope there is backup. And certainly my comms teams in South Lancashire, very keen as of the supervision to ensure that officers don't go to confrontational jobs on their own, that there is backup there. But that's a good effort, but it ain't perfect. It's a part of and a hazard of the job because the job does involve the lawful use of coercive force. We had that conversation in an earlier episode about officer safety. And there were some really, really good points, particularly around some of the work that's been done by Operation Hampshire and through the services such as the National Police Wellbeing Service. How important is it, in your view, the role of a sergeant for new recruits in this development of a good cop? It's absolutely crucial. If you know them, then you know what their work is. You know where their soft spots are, where they may need support, they may need lifting up, they may need to be, for example, put them working with another officer who is good at what they're not so good at and see if we can get a bit of sort of osmosis learning going on. The other thing with the sergeant is to ensure that they don't fall over too much. There's a typical thing where a new probationary constable will take on all the work in the world because they want to show keen and they want to show willing about four to six weeks after that decision, they're generally overwhelmed. They've got too much on their screen in terms of ongoing investigations. And so typically you take them off the road for a few shifts and just let them dig themselves out, help them dig themselves out. Some of the jobs that they've got probably can be closed, for example, or could be progressed fairly easily. And you're showing them that and how are you closing it and what's the rationale or these are some steps you could take that would close off this job that you've got. Then you're using the PDR system as well, where you're speaking with them and looking to set goals and aims, both for, for their self-development and for the development that you want to see in them. And again, steps where that can be done and, and monitoring. You can't just let these things drift. As you're building these capabilities in your team as a sergeant, I suppose one of the real opportunities that you have is how good your tutor constables are. Those tutor constables are someone who teaches a new recruit how to do the job normally for the first eight to 12 weeks of their career when they leave the training centre. And some people call it street craft, don't they? The skills you only pick up through the experience of doing the job. How important are those tutor constables? I was lucky I had two different tutor constables. The first one was very much about powers, procedures, definitions, and to be expected to have your boots shiny, creases in the right place in your trousers. This officer was also very good around the paperwork side of things, around getting statements looking professional, around organising a file of evidence. That was a terrifically useful grounding for me to pick up those things. The second tutor constable I had was, as you said, the street craft, the trade craft constable, and taught me the different ways of resolving situations with people, dealing with people, talking with people, getting to the right level. And I picked that up from him. And again, it was just a terrifically useful grounding. I couldn't have got 
both from the same officer. This notion of life experience, how much of it do we need to be a good cop? What does life experience mean? How has this changed or has it changed in your view? When I joined the job, everybody looked kind of a bit like me. Six foot three, male and fairly tough. On the bigger teams, you'd have one or two female officers, still referred to as WPCs back then, which is totally changed now. I think we're looking now at a lot more female officers on teams, but a lot more people from minorities on teams as well. But some of the great people I work with have also been graduates, have been from a whole range of jobs and backgrounds. My background before policing was accountancy. So it gets down to my broad church thing as well. What experience do you bring? Well, it's variable for everybody. We shouldn't be expecting people to bring an experience to the job. There's value in all of it. As long as what goes in at the start comes out, as a police officer at the end of that two years of probation, you're happy to sign them off as being, this person is competent in their role, they're fit for independent patrol, they are an effective police officer. I'm really interested if we can turn to maybe those who don't make it through initial training or realise during their training that policing just isn't for them after all. And as a sergeant or a tutor constable, there are some really difficult conversations to be had, isn't there, in those occasions? They are difficult to have, but you've got to have them and you've got to be straightforward. And it's got to be recorded and evidenced because you don't want to be wrongly accused of bullying someone when actually what you're telling them is you have these urgent development needs and if they're not met, you're not going to make it. And we're trying to support and we're trying to help and we do everything we can. We bend over backwards really to try and make sure that the development needs are met. But at the end of it, if somebody hasn't made it to the required standard for independent patrol, it's time for paths to part. It's two things with that. It needs to be properly evidenced. And from our side as an organisation, we need to have done what we can properly to support them, to make sure they do get through or that their development needs are addressed. If that's all done, then hand on heart, you know, and with a clear conscience, you can say, I'm sorry, this is not for you. In any walk of life, whatever job you are in, and particularly in policing, making mistakes, they can be the making or the breaking of somebody, depending upon what happens next and the individual responsibility. Craig Simmons tweeted about the ability to admit when you were wrong, even providing donuts for the team as punishment, which I know is quite a police cultural thing, isn't it? If somebody makes maybe a daft mistake on a team or something slightly embarrassing for the individual, there's always a cake fine or buying donuts for the team. My question, Richard, is probably more about those times when cops do make mistakes because like any job, they can and they will happen. What would your advice to a new recruit be when trying to be a good cop if they make a mistake? One of the frequent things that I would get when I was running the team would be a call on my radio. Sarge, can I just run this past you? And it would be an officer at a job and they think that they had a solution to resolving the job that they've been sent to but they just didn't quite have the confidence in themselves to say, yes, this is what I'm going to do. So they want to run it past the Sarge. And I'm really happy with that. Your sergeants are kind of there as the backstop, as a a repository of experience and decision-making. So run things past an experienced member of your team whose judgment you trust. If you made a mistake, if you've done something that's wrong, you need again to speak to your sergeant about it 
Nobody likes surprises, least of all sergeants when a complaint comes in that they're not necessarily ready for or where some criticism comes in regarding officers' work that you're not necessarily ready for. Speak to your sergeant because almost always it will be salvageable and it should be a learning experience for you. Because when you're a police officer out on the beat, uh, particularly if you're on your own, you are reliant upon making quite swift decisions, aren't you? And very often that decision can come back at you at some point. I remember that I always had a pocket notebook and I was told very early on, you record absolutely everything about your decisions, about why you came to that decision. Is the pocket notebook still as important today as it was maybe 10, 15 years ago? I don't think it is. I don't think it's as used. I think we've moved on to electronic devices in Lancashire. We have the Samsung smartphones. What is still important, though, is that rationale. If it wasn't written down, it didn't happen, is the well-known phrase. For each instant, there is a log, and the officer is able to input to the log under the collar number and get your rationale on there, if nowhere else. If you're reporting it as a crime incident and you're taking no further action, you get your rationale down there, but get the rationale down at the time. There is nothing more frustrating, I would think, than going back into something that is eight or nine months old and trying to figure out why the Bobby made that decision at that time and there being nothing to tell you. So we've talked about three stages of becoming a good cop, I suppose. One of those being the basic training. The second one being the tutor constable and the sergeant and the really key role that they play when somebody comes onto a team. And then we've got actually that bit about learning on your own. Would you agree that these three areas were where we can really start to shape, nurture and identify what makes a good cop? That's absolutely what it's about, Rob. Those are the areas where you can you mould them. They've got to be acceptable at everything, but what are they good at? And it's finding that what are they good at and nurturing that and training that and developing that. It makes them better, perhaps more fulfilled as an officer. It makes the team that they're working with better because they have a patchwork of, of skills, abilities, high abilities throughout the team that everybody knows and you should acknowledge them. This is the person who I'm going to send to vulnerable DV victims that don't want to give the statement because I know that's our best chance of getting the evidence. Now, one of the issues that comes up from time to time is the subject of, let's say, dancing cops, especially when these things go viral. The reality of being a good cop in today's society is understanding that everything we do, whether it be on purpose or by accident, can end up on the internet or on the news. And we accept that as a consequence, or even, as we said earlier, a part of the job. This is about that engagement with the community. Even people on this conversation have stated that a good cop needs to be able to communicate, to engage and to connect with the community. I'm just interested in what have you learned or observed about this particular issue? Because where do we see those lines become slightly blurred and how can we try to stay within them from a practical frontline point of view? I like the idea that we don't get involved with the party for the situation. We had a situation recently where an unfortunate officer maybe got, got a bit carried away at a demonstration and started saying things that they might regret in support of the cause. I don't think we should ever get involved in that. I think sometimes spontaneous stuff happens outside. I've seen the YouTube video of a support unit. It's the big riot van type vehicle. Those officers getting out and taking over the drums with a samba band at a protest. And it was a decision that was taken. They were offered, why don't you? And they went, yeah, 
And they did. And it was good. It was spontaneous. It was in keeping with the sort of public order policing they were having to do. It helped get the crowd and members of the crowd on side with policing. It humanised people who were otherwise just coming out of a riot van. It was great. We have officers that are perhaps spontaneously dancing at Notting Hill Carnival and they can dance. No issues with that. It's again engaging with the public. I, I kind of quite like that. Where we get these sort of organised TikToks of people dancing around the cars in the backyard, I'm not so convinced. That doesn't seem to be organic, doesn't seem to me to serve any great useful purpose. I instinctively don't like that sort of dancing cop. But where it's just happened within operations and it's a spontaneous thing and it's been appropriate and it's brought the police closer to the people around them and humanised us, I think that's got to be a good thing. As you come to the end of your policing career, do you remember starting and looking young and people assuming that maybe you were too young to respond to anything? And if so, what advice would you give to any new youthful cops coming into the career for the first time? I joined at the age of 27, which is possibly older than some in the job. However, I would say that first time that I walked out with the big hat in Blackburn Town Centre, I felt young. I felt quite nervous. It occurred to me fairly early on being six foot plus with the big hat on. Some of the lower hanging street signs and stuff in the city centre can knock your helmet off if you're not careful about it. There was a vulnerability about it, if, if I'm honest. It was still though that training equipped me so that when I went to my first shoplifter, I dealt with it competently, got them in, got them processed through custody, got the file in, got all the basics done. And that was me. There was no support there. The first time you do that, it's a little bit heart in mouth. What have I forgotten? What have I not done? But you get through it. And the second time, it's not as impactful on you. And it becomes everyday business fairly quickly. It's a getting of experience, but it is daunting, no doubt. And Richard, you are no stranger to discussing policing and the realities of the challenges faced for the front line. And for those who don't know, you were a well-known commentator about policing. You were known under the pseudonym of The Night Jack. Can you tell us a bit about how your real name became public knowledge, but also tell us a bit about, if you can, maybe some of the learning that you took from your experiences? And more importantly, are you still writing? Yeah, I was a police blogger known as Night Jack. Night Jack in Lancashire and possibly elsewhere is the single detective that is left covering the night shift in a division. I wrote for about two years on policing and on home office policing policy anonymously. I was outed by the Times. It turned out it hacked an email account of mine, unsurprisingly, and got my address and proper details from that. At the time, knowing what was coming down the lines, I spoke to my inspector, made a full and frank admission to professional standards department. And what they said to me was, Richard, if it's racist, sexist or homophobic, you are going to get sacked. Well, I'm still here. So it was none of those things. I ended up with a 12-month written warning. The Lancashire Police were actually really supportive once they'd got on side with the fact that it was public interest blogging and not ranting and not racist, sexist, homophobic or personally abusive to people. That thing I was saying about if you're in the deep and smelly, go and speak to your supervision. That definitely paid dividends for me. Supervision were really supportive. I think if you're open and you're honest and you're not facing the sort of consequences that are going to put you out of the job, the job's going to be pretty supportive to you in my experience. Down the line, I managed to prove the Times journalist had hacked me. I got some compensation and I was able to start writing again. The issue really after I'd been outed, I could never really get the taste for writing again. 
And now I have, and I'm writing some pieces for Kansas City Chiefs um, support site, uh, American Football League. I'm really enjoying being able to write again and it just flowing from me the way it used to in the past. Places like the College of Policing and also lots of the national stakeholders that we work with can really learn something from listening more to people on the front line and this is one way in which we're trying to do that so we do really really appreciate your input on that and i just want to say a special thank you for that it's been a pleasure rob it really has thank you that's all we have time for in this episode but if you'd like to find out more information on this subject or any of the issues we discuss on the college of policing podcast then head over to the website college.police.uk Please also check out our extensive show notes with links and signposts to help you broaden your own knowledge, evidence and research for each area that we discuss on this podcast. You've been listening to the official College of Policing podcast with me, Rob Flanagan. I do hope you will join us again soon for the next episode, taking a closer look inside policing.